today's episode of the Culture Pop Podcast, Tales from Sue Kalinske's 65th birthday party. Plus, actor Keith David talks about his days with Mr. Rogers, plus performances from films like The Thing, Platoon, Requiem for a Dream, and his new one, Unplugging. Don't forget, you can subscribe to the Culture Pop Podcast on Apple, Spotify, or at stevemason.com. And don't forget to leave us a rating and a review. The Culture Pop Podcast is brought to you by the law offices of Jacob M. Ronnie. Accident or injury, call Jacob M. Ronnie. Call Jacob. Hey, it's Mace. If you or a friend or loved one is injured in an accident, the first person you should call is my friend Jacob. When I did this, Jacob was great. He helped me by talking through the next steps, which really put my mind at ease. When you're injured in an accident, you got to have an expert. That's why you call Jacob, just like I did. Call Jacob, 844-24-JACOB. That's 844-24-JACOB. Or visit calljacob.com. Call Jacob. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Culture Pop Podcast. I'm Steve Mason, along with Sue Kalinske, who is now 65. Had a big God. birthday party. Big birthday party. It was a blast, Sue. Yes, you just did the scream face. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was like Macaulay Culkin in uh, Home Alone. <laughs> um, I'm great. I'm exhausted. I have, uh, I have a birthday voice. Yeah, um, sure. Uh, it, it was really, really fun. And I, and I feel like I'm five years old when I say it was the best, best birthday ever. It was just, it was just fun, you know, um, just a great group of people, um, great food. Yeah. Uh, great whether, food. Where'd you whether, get the Thai, the Thai food was fantastic. I had one of my neighbors owns a Thai restaurant in Long Beach. Very nice. Very nice. Now, the pad thai was hiding away back in the kitchen. And so I had to alert everybody at some point. Pad thai in the kitchen. (laughs) And there was a line. So, uh, you know, one of the things that came out of this uh, this event on Saturday night, this birthday party, was that I met one of your friends who I find out is a big listener, not just of the podcast, but of Mason and Ireland, Monica, is it Monica Piper? Yes. Now she, I love her. She was mm. hilarious. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I have known Monica pretty much my entire stand-up career out in LA. Um, we were roommates for a long time. She, <laughs> this is crazy. She lived in Venice on the uh, canal. Yep. And um, she used to leave her back door open all the time. She she let me live there for a period of time oh, okay. in, in between apartments. <laughs> okay. And um, and I'm in the bathroom one day and I hear wah, wah, wah. all these ducks had come in from the canal. <laughs> into came, into the bathroom? No, into her house. Into, into her, her house? Room. I just heard it from the bathroom and it sounded like awfully close. <laughs> and they would just wah, wah, walking around her living room. But she um, she she's a big, big animal lover. I mean, she didn't do that, you know, for them to be there. It just so happened that they did. But she had a cat that was pregnant and I was staying. I was there by myself. She went away for, uh, I don't know, a couple of days. Did you deliver the kitties? No, but she told me at some point the cat was may, um may deliver. You know, she she just may have her her kittens while she's away. And I completely forgot about it. 
and um, I in in my closet. Um, I one day I hear like 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 little crying like babies, yeah. and I had always shut my door because I'm not a cat person, yes. and I never wanted her cat in my room because I didn't want the cat to spray or just I just didn't want the cat in the room. Yeah, right. And what happened was because I kept my door shut, the kittens didn't have their mother. Oh, I think like two of her kids, two of the kittens like ended up, they didn't die, but they ended up like, like, like they needed like cat therapy. I mean, I'm not, I'm not a cat person, but that makes me a little sad. Well, it made me sad, but I, I mean, I had no idea (laughs) that they were, that she was trying to get in and I didn't realize it until days after um, she had given birth. Well, I love that, Monica, because she listens to the podcast and to Mason in Ireland. She was asking about Jorge and Bergman, and I, she's all over it. I love well, she, well, she's a huge, huge sports fan. Yeah, she, she said she's a big hockey fan, and we don't talk a lot of pucks. Yes, yes. She actually said to me one day, um, how come they never, ever talk hockey? I said, because it's just not an interest of theirs. They just, she says, yeah, but it's a sports show. I was like, take it up with them. Yeah, you know? no, it is true. We talk. Well, two things. First of all, hockey in L.A. has never been a sports talk radio topic. Right. It's just but never. It's, but it's, it's crazy. But it's crazy because the Kings have had had periods where they were amazing. They won oh, Stanley two Stanley Cups. Cups. Yeah. Two so, of them. so so why is that? I can't really explain it. I know, you know, we can watch. This is a little inside baseball, but we can watch the ratings mm-hmm. minute by minute. And we can see that when we talk about, for example, the Clippers, the ratings fall, or when the Kings, the ratings go down. And so we tend to go, because we're in it for one thing, the ratings, we tend to go where the ratings are. And for whatever reason, hockey, and that doesn't mean the Kings aren't great, doesn't mean they they sell out every game. Uh, we were definitely all in on the Stanley Cup. I was there when they won both Stanley Cups. I think I was in the uh, ESPN LA box when they won the Stanley Cups, which was fantastic. But it's just not a sports talk radio. And I'm more of a Kings fan than I am a hockey fan. Like, I'll never turn on a hockey game. Between, just, just to watch it. Just to watch it. Right. I'll, watch the, I'll watch a Kings game. Uh, right. And it's fun to be at a Kings game. Have you been to a hockey game? I have with her. She used to have season tickets. Oh, it is so much fun because uh, there's there, it's it's the sound of uh, the skates on the ice and the crowd is super into it. And mm-hmm. It's cold and all that stuff. I mean, it's mm-hmm. like really a, a cool experience to go to a hockey game. It's just not a sports talk radio thing. Now, I have a, I have a, a specific question for you. So yes. I was sort of hunkered down around a little campfire at your party. Mm-hmm. on Saturday night. And mm-hmm. it was uh, Kathy Ladman's husband and a, b- a bunch of people. And we were, we were talking pretty much all night long and it came to the end of the night and I was inside your house mm-hmm. and a woman was leaving the house yes. and I had never met her at the party and she had never met me. Mm-hmm. So what is the protocol? Do I say goodbye to that person do I give them a hug and say, next time we'll talk? I mean, what, what's the, the right protocol? Am I supposed to say, have any conversation with that person as they're leaving, despite the fact that I never actually met them? Um, I guess it's just whatever you're feeling in the moment. I mean, I, I mean I've been at parties where I, there were people that I didn't. I mean, did you ever make eye contact with her? I no, mean, not even when she left. 
Oh, not even when she was saying goodbye, because neither one of us wanted that awkward moment where it was like, oh, and I'll say nice meeting because we never met. So but but you did make eye contact as she was leaving or no? I mean, if you never made eye contact with the person, I would say you just we sort of ignored each other because neither one of us wanted that that moment where it's like nice meeting. But I mean, we didn't really talk, but but it was great being at the same house as you. Right. I think it's different if the person is leaving and you never talk to them. But as they're leaving, your eyes lock and it's like, oh, I didn't meet you. Like, um, hi, you know, I'm so and so. And maybe we'll get to talk the next time. But if you never, ever had any kind of eye contact with the person, I would say you just let them go. What if we had had eye contact and had never spoken? Then what do I say? Well, I mean, I've, I've had that moment where someone that I never met is saying goodbye to people around me as they're leaving. And I'm the odd one who never met them. And we look at one another and I was like, Oh, you know, uh, nice not talking to you all night or, or, you know, whatever. (laughs) I mean, I would just maybe crack a joke and then say, um, you know, too bad. We didn't, you know, we didn't meet or, you know, it's weird because sometimes you meet somebody on their way out and you end up having a tiny bit of a conversation with them and think, Oh man, I wish I would have talked to them. I wish I would have talked to you because I really like you in this one minute that I have with you. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So had we made eye contact Mm -hmm. would have been appropriate to talk, but Mm -hmm. because we didn't, I was okay in ignoring her departure. Yeah. Because they wouldn't even know that you ignored them. You, you know that you did because it was on your mind, but if you never made eye contact, they, I'm sure they wouldn't walk out thinking did that person who I didn't notice, like, unless they were psychic, were they like looking at me as I left and didn't say anything to me? Because then at that point, you know what? It would have been, it would have been the pot talking. (laughs) Well, then there was pot. pot. I was a little stoned by the end of the night. Yeah. Do you, so I I, I was stoned in the beginning, middle. And yeah, you, you, you got there early. So at the end of the night and I was, we were getting ready to leave and I was, I was a little stoned and, so, and there was a group of people standing around in, in your area there and <laughs> <My> area. <laughs> your area, the area of the food uh-huh. and the cake. And I went to make a statement and I got lost in the statement. <laughs> do you, do you remember this? You started to say something. <laughs> I started to say, to say something. And it was like, you know, we talked about it. Here's how it went. So, you know, we talked about this this week on the show. It was like, what's if, what am I saying? <laughs> do, you ever, do you ever do that in the middle of Big Stone? What's if I, what if I, where was I? <laughs> and you're not even that far in and you don't know yeah, where you were. I totally lost the place. I was just starting. I had this great idea and I, I couldn't get it out. So were people actually like, like hanging on, like, like it was so weird. And I was for some reason, the focal point of the attention at that point. And I looked at Juan and he's, and he's looked at me when I said, what was I, what if I, and, and I looked at Juan, and I said, what am I saying? And Juan's like, eh, you're on your own on this one. I don't know. <laughs> but the question was a good one. When I finally did get it up, oh at my what God. age are you old? Now, did we talk about that? We we may have, but I'm so old. I don't know whether 
yeah, we no. talked about it. <laughs> you don't remember if we covered that material exactly. <laughs> we may have. It yeah. sounds familiar. <laughs> sounds, see, I did it on the show, so now I don't remember what material I did on the show and what material I did here. Well, and by the way, I call it material. material. I was going to say... There have been times where I, you know, was on stage and I would say something. I was like, did I, did we, did I talk about <laughs> did this? I do that joke <laughs> Did we cover this already? <laughs> <laughs> so at what age are you old? You know, I, I think that if you're in, in, in good health. Yes. And, um, and, and sound mind, I think that probably not until you like, I think like maybe the first thing would be that you're, you have to maybe walk, walk with a cane. Yes. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> that's, like, well, that's <laughs> for sure. That's but a, I think, but I think that if you're still active and doing stuff and being silly and smoking pot and being crazy, um, I don't, I just don't know. Like I haven't felt old yet. No, you are not old. And I, I was trying to describe like 65 is significant because you can cash in your Medicare, right? Mm. Then, then you're good for Medicare. And that feels like another level of aging, but you're not old at all. Like, I don't think now my mom is going to be 80 in June. Leo, not stepdad. Leo is 81. They don't feel old because my mom goes to school every day and works in the office. She's like the attendance lady. And Leo gives tours at the living desert out in Palm Desert. They just don't seem old to me. I think that there are different levels of feeling old. Like I have a great niece that's like 22 years old. Yes. So I have nieces that are in their 40s. Right. So when I think of that, I'm like, oh, my God. Or like... um. Like when I'm around people who uh, like, you know, when, when, when I was working all the time, I was always the oldest person at work. Right. And I would make a reference that no one got, you know, and they'd look at me like. Oh, is it like Bonanza? Oh, ba- Bonanza, George Ponderosa. Burns. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I, actually, I actually was uh, working on a show and there was a guy there that was around my age. Okay. And um. I was trying to give an analogy to the show we were doing. And I said, it kind of has that Burns and Allen feel. Oh, and <laughs> he looked at me like, you can't bring up those references. No one knows where you're talking about. <laughs> I mean, he did, you know, yeah. but it was like the perfect reference. And a part of me wanted to say, you know, go on, go, you know, go online and watch it because it is the perfect analogy to what we're doing. There's right. nothing else out there. Like if there was something more current, I would have brought it up. But, you know, and I, I guess, you know, in normal conversation, I don't think you have to really worry about it. But in show business, you know, where age is just, you know, you're 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 like you're like it's like being an athlete, you know, like they look at you like if you're. 60 something and you're working on a show and everybody's like 30 something, you know, you don't want to um, accentuate that. Right. That right. Old. Sure. Um, but um, so there are different levels, I, I think, for me. But but just an overall like I just feel I feel like I am so much younger than people who are so much younger than me. OK, let me think about that. You feel so much younger than people who are younger than you. 
because of who they are, not maybe, and maybe physically too. Like, you know, I'm a runner. Right. I mean, I'm very active, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and, uh, you know, I stay up really late. Um, I, you know, it, it, again, it's the silliness. And I think it's just the state, it's a, it's a state of mind. And when I say, you know, I feel younger than people who are older, there are so many young people who are very old to me. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's true. It's you true. Know, whether they're very serious or um, they just don't get stuff. They're just not fun. Yeah. Yeah. So I got into a conversation Saturday about somebody brought up Hugh Grant mm-hmm. and getting busted with the prostitute. Oh, yes. Okay. Now, do you remember the prostitute's name? Yeah, it was something brown. What is it? Divine brown? Divine brown. Divine brown. I was like, of oh, you were in this conversation. I was like, yeah, of, yeah. of all of the great people in recorded history, for some reason, I n- know Divine Brown. That has stuck in my brain. And a lot of people are the same. Divine Brown, the prostitute in the car with Hugh Grant. Sure. Um, and, and we remember, you know, the other one that sticks out to me is, do you remember Oliver North and Iran-Contra? Yeah. Do you remember the woman there who stuffed papers into her dress or whatever? Yeah, it was, it was, it was Faith something, right? As Fawn Hall. Oh, Fawn Hall. Yeah. Just these names that stick in your head. And I feel like I should know more names of people that have actually done something in their lives as opposed to stuff papers in their dress or hooked up with Hugh Grant on some side street in Hollywood. Right. And then I brought up the Seinfeld joke, which is just the craziest. Jerry Seinfeld. This is my favorite Jerry Seinfeld joke. Early in his career, he did a joke about a guy who caught a bullet in his teeth. Yes. And Crazy. he and he said, I can't remember the guy's name. And he <laughs> said, What does this guy have to do for me to remember his name? He caught a bullet in his teeth. <laughs> I love that joke. That's just so, <laughs> I so love clean that joke. and so perfect. Yeah, how does he work so clean? And always has. And so I mean. So smart. You just have to be so much funnier to work clean. Is that right. true? But but I, I didn't mean it clean in that the content was clean. It was just such a clean joke. Oh, I see it what you're saying. It was just such a perfect, perfect joke. Um, but it's know, also a clean joke. But it is a clean joke. It's clean on on, on two levels. I I um it's just something that I guess was always very important to him. I, I never, I don't think I ever heard him curse on stage. And I saw Jerry very, very early on in his career. Right. Jerry was one of those comedians who he was hysterical out the gate. I saw him at a crappy club in Queens called the rainy night house. And it was aesthetically like so unstand up friendly. It was a, it was a long, long room like narrow and um and so just like seating wise you know you had to like like people were like all the way down all this the way, way okay all the way so it's like a bowling so it had, alley have, playing one it, side it, of a bowling exactly yeah. so it didn't have like depth yeah where you were you were just talking to like a narrow group of people <laughs> who were so far away from you on either side and um he was so comfortable on stage that was the one thing that i remember about him not only was he hysterically funny but he was so comfortable it was like you were sitting in his living room and he was just talking to you like he it it was it was effortless 
and it, and it was conversational. Yeah. And, uh, and also he, that was his style. I mean, he wasn't like a da 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 ba boom, you know, it wasn't like there was a rhythm to his jokes with a lot of comedians. It's like set up, you know, punchline. Yes. It, it wasn't like that. It was just, you know, he was just talking to you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but when I went uh, back, I went to see Brian Cranston in Network, um, which he won the Tony for on Broadway. And we went backstage afterwards. And who is there? But Jerry Seinfeld hmm. backstage. And it's funny. I felt so. I mean, I introduced or I think Brian introduced us. Um, and, but I was so intimidated by Jerry Seinfeld because he's Jerry Seinfeld. Right. So I hardly said anything. I still get starstruck. That's, that's a moment when I was legitimately starstruck. I really didn't know what to say. Yeah. And I'm sure he's the nicest guy in the world. Right. I find that, um, because I've been in situations where I've been around famous people and, um, I find that, uh, they really, really like when you just talk to them like they're anybody else. A normal person. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, I've I've said things to people that I didn't really know that well. And they'll you know, kind of look at me like, oh, <laughs> I like you. You yeah, know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, um, you okay. Cut, it cut through the fame and all that stuff. That yeah, because I it. think it, it, it must it must be a little uncomfortable sometimes being so famous. If people kind of treat you like, you know, you're somewhat of like a zoo animal right you know you're special you're you're right right. a zoo animal is a good way to describe it yeah like uh you know don't don't feed the you know the you know the famous actor you know know, don't make eye contact and uh you know i i and and look you know i'm sure there are certain people who are really famous that maybe put off that vibe you know like don't talk to me don't look at me you know it's very interesting i remember years and years ago um you know i know ray romano you know Fairly well. Yeah. And Tom had met him at a party um, uh, a, a while before this incident happened. And Tom, you know, he does um, he does, you know, in, in surveys in different buildings. So yes. he happened to be at this hospital on a job and he looked over and he saw Ray Romano uh, talking on the phone and Ray looked sad mm. and um you know, his instinct, you know, because he, he had met him and, and, and he, and, you know, they had had a conversation with one another. He thought, um, you know, and under, under different circumstances, he would have gone over to say something to him, but he just felt like maybe he was getting bad news because he was in the hospital. So he, he, Ray saw him and maybe in his mind was like, please don't come over. Please don't come over, you know? <laughs> right. And, and, and Tom didn't, he was very respectful. Sure. So then um, a little while after that, maybe like the following week, we happened to be at a party that Ray was at and Ray came over to Tom and said to him, um, I knew that was you. And I just want to tell you that I really, really appreciate the fact that you didn't come over and talk with me because I just got the news that my father, I think his father died. Oh. And uh, he said, and I just appreciated you giving me my space and, and not coming over and trying to have a conversation with me. And every time he sees Tom, he reminds Tom of that. Oh, so he knew. Yeah. Which I thought was the right thing. That is cool. That is cool. Uh, Well, happy birthday. Uh, Delays a great time. Had, had a lot of fun. Sorry. I lost my way in a conversation.
thoughts. What's the five? You, you of all people. What of what of all? What what am I saying? Yeah. So uh, our guest today is one of the busiest character actors in the business. His film credits include Platoon, Armageddon, There's Something About Mary, Crash, and Requiem for a Dream. He has an Emmy-winning voiceover career, including his work on Ken Burns projects like The War and Muhammad Ali. His current film is Unplugging, starring Matt Walsh and Eva Longoria. Keith David joins us. Keith, thank you so much for doing this. No worries. So... You know, we'll talk about unplugging, which is really fun. We had Matt Walsh on the show last week. It's got a really cool message. But but hearing your voice, the voice we were just talking about before we started. I also I've done radio for 50 years, never had pipes. You've got pipes. When did you realize that? I've been a singer my whole life. So I, um, you know, I always sang and wanted to be a singer. So. I was always interested in um, training or whatever. So I started studying when I was about 15. When I was 12, I had auditioned for the, um, what was it? It was the Hunter College Opera Company, but I was far too young. Okay. And uh, I just, you know, kept training. And, I, you, know, I, you know, I really, you, you, you can't know enough. Mm-hmm. I mean, for, for, for what I want to do, and that and that is, to have some variety and to to do different things, not to be stuck in one uh, one mold, one place. Although, l- listen, there's some great places to be stuck. I just don't want to be stuck. Right. I always think uh, voiceover work um, is is probably the coolest job in the world because you know you're you show up, you're on a stage, you're just hanging out. You don't, you know, it it just. It just seems like so much fun, but is it more, is it more challenging the acting part of it because you're not like really making eye contact with your fellow actors? You're you, most, cause every time I ever see anybody doing voiceovers, they're standing in front of a microphone and they're looking at the script because you don't have that kind of contact. Um, is, is it a different approach to acting? Um, it, it's a different genre. Yes. Um, but good acting is good acting. I mean, you're, you're always at the ready is your creative imagination. You always have to be in that space. So, I mean, there, there are many times, even if you're acting in a movie and you're on camera because of a certain angle or whatever, sometimes you'll have to, sometimes because of the eye line, I will have to be talking to, uh, uh, an orange cross that is, uh, uh, you know, pasted somewhere in the room mm. because that's the eye line. That's what, that's what, you know, you want me to be looking, but the person talking is actually over there or over there or someplace other than that spot. Well, I'm still engaged with that person. It's just a matter of the focus of where, you know, where, where your eye goes, but you're always engaged in the moment that you're in. Mm-hmm. So you were uh, a regular on Mr. Rogers in the 1980s. <laughs> you played Keith the Carpenter in the neighborhood of Make Believe. Now, I grew up on Mr. Rogers. I don't want to make you feel old. It was way bef- way after me that you were on. But what was it like working with Fred Rogers? Wow. I mean, you know, Fred Rogers was one of the nicest men I've ever met in my life. and. 
a very deeply spiritual man. I, I mean, I didn't, I, I didn't, I didn't know that before I worked with him. You know, of course, growing up, you know, I, Mr. Rogers was was always on TV, always on uh, PBS. Uh, I didn't always, and when I was growing up watching TV myself, I didn't necessarily get him. You know, because he was always a little bit slow from, you know, just for 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 you know my attention span. But once I got to know him, and you know, first of all, he was a Presbyterian minister, and his ministry was to children. And at the time when I got when I first got hired, to, you know, um, I had a, I was working in the theater in Pittsburgh, and one of the ladies had, I guess you would, you know, today you would call him autistic. At that time, we called him a hyperactive kid. Mm-hmm. And uh, Brian was his name. And, you know, if you were at the dinner table, you know, Brian would run around the table six times. I mean, you know, he was just, he was just all over the place. When Mr. Rogers came on, hmm. he was glued to that television. And if you came in making noise, he would go, <laughs> and it, it it was amazing. I mean, it was just amazing how he how he would, you know, really rivet their attention. And he never played down to the to children. He uh, you know he really you know he embraced adult subjects. Uh, one of my, one of my favorite episodes that that I did was called War and Peace. And it talked about how you know wars are started by arguments and disagreements with, between adults. And um, it was just so um, mature, you know, you know, I just grew to have a great admiration for him because he was, he really, he was really on to something. Did Fred ever get angry? Did he ever cuss by accident? I mean, anything like that? Or was he, he wasn't was he that, that guy? guy. He no. wasn't that guy. He was who he appeared to be. Wow. I mean, of, 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 of any human being I have ever come across in my life who is what they say they are, he was him. Wow. He was just wow. that guy. One time I was working either at the public theater or at La Mama, and I was in the village and walking down the street, and Fred was walking down the street, and, and, he, and he was like, hi, Keith, how are you? It's just so good to see you. And, you know, that's just who he was. I mean, it was just, it was really amazing. It was, you know, I, it's just, it, it, you know, it was, it was, it's really remarkable and awe-inspiring when you see somebody who really, I mean, there's no pretensions about this man. Right. He always wore the cardigan sweater. That was, that was his, his trademark. And I remember a story because he, I guess he wrote them off because he wore them on the show. It was wardrobe. And then I guess he was seen somewhere wearing the cardigan sweater, like outside of the studio. And I think he got busted for with taxes because <laughs> they were like, hey, you wear those all the time. <laughs> yeah, well, that's nice to know that, uh, you know, it's it's it feels good to my heart that he was not a phony. That that's yeah. that's who he was. That's who he was. There are such people in the world. Yeah. So I want to ask you about you were in, in a great creepy cult movie called The Thing. You, uh, Kurt Russell, the great John Carpenter. Uh, it was supposed to be set in Antarctica. And I've always wondered, where did you shoot that con- con- that uh, that movie? And what were the conditions like there? 
we did shoot. We shot a thing for three weeks in Alaska, in uh, uh, British Columbia. So it was cold uh, in, uh, exteriorly. But uh, the first few weeks, first few months were in on a soundstage at Universal. And they had created this magnificent set where I think they kept it at like 20 degrees. There were wow. these sprinklers on the set and the, and, you know, it was made of ice, I guess, you know, or, or some, some kind of thin set, synthetic ice or something, but it was cold. And it was, you know, it was, it was my first movie. So everything, everything was fascinating. Everything. <laughs> so, you know, we, you know, we'd be working and then you, you, you get a break, you break for lunch, you'll take a 10 minute break and you walk out and it's 80 degrees outside. But you come back inside and, you know, and it was, it was, it's great. You know, I mean, when you, when you uh, can get an immersion like that into the world, I mean, there's nothing, I don't have to act. I just have to behave. Hmm. Yeah. 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 That was, that was a wonderful thing about John Carpenter. He, he, uh, he really knows how to set up an atmosphere where all the actor has to do is find the behavior of the character. I don't have to pretend a whole lot of stuff, you know, just find the character. And, um, and that's, that, that's also a great thing. Why do you think the movie stood the test of time? Because when it came out, it was not, it, it didn't do gigantic. At it, the didn't box do, office. it didn't do well. Yeah. It, it didn't do well at all. So why, I mean, why has it lasted? Why has it come back around and we now view it as, as a cult classic? Because it was a great movie. Um, the movie was based on a short story called who goes there and it was a story uh it's basically really the story of uh, uh as in our movie um this alien entity you know is amongst us and the paranoia that creeps into the these relationships these men who supposedly are friends and know each other suddenly they don't know what they can't trust whether they know each other or not mm -hmm. because this thing whatever it is if it in fact consumes you and is imitating you, you don't know it. And no one around you know it. It imitates yeah. you so well. And the only time it reveals itself is if its existence is threatened. Until then, it will not reveal itself. And the, the, the thing that's really great about it is because uh, is that, you know, it, it doesn't it doesn't get paranoid like we do. Like if two guys are having an argument, it doesn't feel like it's being threatened and, you know, give you a sneak preview. Right. Right. It waits, it waits until the host's life is threatened, not his ego. Yeah. And then comes out, which was, was which was really kind of fascinating. So when, when you're acting in a, like a, a scary movie, um, are you scared? I mean, do, I mean, I mean, as an actor, I mean, you, you, if, 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 if it calls for that, but are there things that a director will do to kind of surprise you to get a certain reaction? Because, you know, you're, you're used to, you're, you, you know, as an actor, it's coming, but if you don't know it's coming, that's there scary. Is a, there is a, there's a wonderful, wonderful moment when we're on the couch and um, we, as we rehearsed it, 
And Donald said, gentlemen, I know you, we've been through a lot, but if you don't mind, I'd rather not spend the rest of the evening tied to this fucking couch. Or tied <laughs> to this couch. So I don't know what John said, but I'm, and I'm sure this is the take that they took. But suddenly, okay, we're rolling again. And the next thing you know, Donald goes, gentlemen, I'm sure, uh, I know we've all been through a lot, but if you don't mind, I'd rather not spend the rest of the evening tied to this fucking couch! <laughs> it scared the bejesus out of all of us. It was like, oh, you know. And it was a genuine reaction. And uh, it was it was fantastic. It was fantastic. It was, so, it, was it was character. It wasn't you know. It was all. It mm. was all just one. It was one of those wonderful surprises that you know can happen on a set, especially with good communication between the director and the actors. You uh, you started with Charlie Sheen and Willem Dafoe and Oliver Stone's Platoon, and there are really, if you look at it, three at least for me, three definitive Vietnam movies: Deer Hunter, Apocalypse Now, and Platoon, which would go on to win Best Picture at the Oscars. So this was 1987. The country was really coming to terms with the tragedy of Vietnam. What did that movie? What did Platoon mean to you? It was, it was you know, after the thing, the thing being my first movie. Uh, you know, I got some honorable mention and I thought, oh, maybe I'm going I'm to have a life in the movies, which is what I wanted. And then I didn't work in another movie for four years. Hmm. Praise God that I, I always had the theater to fall back on because I, I can always get a job in the theater. And so I, you know, kicked around in the theater. And then Platoon came along. Who knew? Who would have thunk it? And And that... The, the film that we shot was actually, you know, it had it had been kicking around. You know, it it, it took Oliver ten years. It had been, you know, a few years before then we shot it, and like you said, it shot it in '86. Um, and I guess maybe I maybe '84, sometime '84, maybe '85. Um, it had come, you know, it had a different producer. I think it was Dino De Laurentiis was 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 a a partner in it, and it was called. And, and as, as I as I recall, it was called the platoon. Mm. And uh, I, I, Mary Cahoon was the casting director, and I went and I read for it. And ironically, she said, I, I, and I, I read for the role of Doc, and then she asked me to come back and read for the role of King, mm -hmm. which I, you know, I mean, I did. And then I don't know what happened with it. It just went away. So a couple of years later, when this platoon, these, you know, this platoon came, you know, was being cast. Um, I'm not sure whether Mary was still casting it or not. But this time, whoever was casting it, um, I got to meet Oliver Stone and read for Oliver Stone. And, I, and again, I went in and read for Doc. He said, no, 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 you're not Doc. He said, I want you to, I want you to read for King. Mm -hmm. Come in tomorrow and... Read me King. And this is the probably the first time this ever happened to me in my life at that time. And he, uh, I came in, I read, and he said, okay, as far as I'm concerned, the part is yours. It's really good to see somebody who really fits the part that I, you know, that I wrote. I'm thinking, you know, this is Hollywood. You know, this is a lie. You know, 
you know, it was encouraging, I, I, but, you know, people talk. And then at the time I had, uh, I had just gotten a new, a new agent had joined my agency and I really didn't know him very well. And he's the one who sent me up for the gig. And, um, <laughs> so, so I said, well, well, thanks. He says, oh, my agent tells me to tell you hello, figuring that he would know who the agent was who sent me up. He said, well, who's your agent? And I said, um, oh, God, his name is, uh, he said, yeah, 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 right, yeah, right. You know, if, if he really is your agent, tell him to give me a good deal on you. And I'm like, oh, I just blew that. <laughs> so immediately I called and I said, you know, I think it was a good audition. We, you know, he's, he's, he, you know, he made allusions to he was going to call. And so I don't know, you know, you know how these things go. An hour later, he called and made me an offer. Mm. Hmm. How cool. that, was, that was the first time that I'd walked in. The guy said, the job is yours. And I got the job. That is so cool. Yeah. You know, I watched the film recently, you know, for probably the 10th time. And I wondered, like, because I because I read that um, Dale Dye, who was um, a Vietnam you know war veteran, trained you guys. So you're doing PT. And I wonder I was wondering, as an actor, you know, it, it, it's always intimate when you're working with a group of actors for any period of time. But was it even more intimate because you actually trained together as a platoon? So was it was it heightened for you as an actor yeah, in, in this in this role? Definitely. You know, we didn't call ourselves uh, by our actual names for two weeks. We called each other by our character name. And we lived outside. We, you know, we trained outside. It was, it was, it was fascinating. I mean, I've never had that opportunity before or since. I mean, it was a, it was totally immersive and really beautiful. It was, it was, it was a great opportunity. And there's no, there's no wonder why, you know, uh, a lot of the stuff that came together and, and was cohesive was because you don't, you don't get, you don't get those, uh, you know, the, you know, the, one of the grand differences in plays and movies is, you know, when you, when you see the final product of a play, it's because we, we have been rehearsing for at least three, four, maybe six weeks. Hmm. And so we have been, we have been doing this together and, and this, we've established a rhythm and, a, you know, you don't always get those, to get that kind of opportunity to rehearse in a film. I mean, you rehearse on the set on the day, but to have that, you know, there's, you know, there's, there's something to be said for, you know, knowing how to work and how to uh, use and build upon that time that you get. One of the things, you know, another great skill that you get to hone is how, how to cut to the chase. You know, I don't have, and you, you know, you sort of get right to it. Now, you know, there's, there are other things to explore and, you know, hopefully the, between the director, the other, the input of the other actors, the environment. Of course, you, you land on something that is sweet, but it's a different, it's a different thing when you get, when you really do get to rehearse. So if you happen to hear, somebody has decided to saw something right outside of my studio here. So if you hear it, uh, don't worry. It's not going to be part of the show. It'll be the sound guy. will will find a way to get it out of there. So I just wanted to give you that heads up because he's being a little loud. His timing is terrible. Hmm. So there are so many movies 
that I I would love to ask you about. I I want to go I, I want to go with Darren Aronofsky's Requiem for a Dream, which is one of the most uh, original and daring. I've never seen anything like it. Honestly, I've never seen anything like it since. Uh, he's gone on to be one of the great uh, tours in in film of his generation. He was in his thirties, I think, when he made that movie. Um, as an actor, you've got to trust your director. And this this movie was kind of out on a limb. Uh, what was your relationship with Aronofsky like? I loved working with Darren. Um, you know, I didn't know him. There was no reason not to trust him. As a matter of fact, I, I, you know, just now I was reminded of uh, working on Dead Presidents, and I had a couple of instincts, initial instincts, that um, the director was like, no, 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 no. I want to do it like this. And I was a little bit leery at first because, of course, I thought my idea was better. Uh, <laughs> um, but, in fact, it wasn't. In fact, he was right. And, and, and it was that kind of trust that I had with, with, uh, with, Aaron, you know, with Darren. It was like, wow, okay. I play it like that. I'm glad, you know. I'm happy to play it like you know. It it didn't it didn't uh, violate my sense of truth in any shape or form. So I mean, I could I can find that. Yeah, I can navigate through that. And it was like, thank you, you know. And and you know, in fact, in both instances, uh, it taught me a great lesson in life. And that is, just because it's not my idea, doesn't make it a bad idea. Mm-hmm. No, I, would, I wanted to ask you. Um, you know, you've worked with great directors. What, what if you can if you can name one aspect of a director? What would it be that to you is gives you the most, or makes you feel the most safer? What what is it? What is it about directors? I think a good, a good director to me sets up an atmosphere, which we can just all we have to do is find the behavior. We don't have to, pre- there's not a whole lot of pretense. You know, I don't have to pretend a whole lot of things. Uh, but, you know, he sets an environment up emotionally, um, you know, physically, where I can just find the behavior of the character. I don't have to, you know, I don't want to be caught acting, frankly. Mm-hmm. You know, and, you know, if I have to act, you know, I'm, I hope I'm acting well, you know, but, uh, you know, uh, mostly I want to find the circumstances, you know, find the relationships and play that. So let's talk about uh, unplugging. Uh, man and his wife go away without devices, without screens on a vacation in, I guess, you know, the wilderness, you could say, uh, and, and what happens there. How much time do you spend on your <laughs> devices and your screens? Uh, if you talk to my wife, she'll tell you too much. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, we've, become dependent on these little things, you know, because they're little mini computers. I mean, I could get on my, I'd rather get on my big screen computer and work, but sometimes you got to do it in uh, faster spaces and quicker paces, you know, sometimes, you know, sending an email from my, from my computer is great, but you know, when I can send it from my phone, you know, uh, I'm certainly reading an email from my phone, getting a message, you know, you know, you think, what did we do before that? You know, you went to a telephone booth. Yeah. 
and you and you and you waited. You had to have, you know, I I mean I think one of the things that this uh information age has made us more impatient. You know, you can't you can't wait a few minutes to get home. You know, sometimes on purpose as an exercise, I will not pick up my phone. If you know, if, you know, you know, you don't there's nothing that immediate that you need to get a hold of me. If right. you if you uh you know, I'm, you know, and because sometimes I can find myself distracted because I'm in the middle of something else. The phone rings. Is it an emergency? Probably not. Right, right. And if it is an emergency, um, and someone is is constantly calling, same person is constantly calling you, then you know, okay, something's up. You know what I mean? One, you know, if they call you once, it's like, well, you know, if it was that important that you know, I'll, I'll, I'll I can always get back to them. But I, I have you ever left your house without your phone and just continued to be without your phone, or you're like, oh, I got to go back and get it. No, I got to go back and get it. Yeah, yeah. because sometimes, sometimes where I'm going is on the phone. <laughs> you know, my appointment, my next appointment. I know, I know where I'm going now, but I don't have I don't have memorized the the next address that I'm going to. So I got to go back and get it. It's so funny because I don't, you know, it used to be that I would, you know, have like a sticky and I would write, you know, a, a note on that and, and take that with me. Now I take a photo of what the information I need. Right. So it's so true. It's always on your phone. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. I, um, I, I was in, well, I was my, my partner um, and I were in bed the other night and I were watching TV and I, he's on his screen and all of a sudden I hear a ding and he has texted me uh, while we're, we're in bed together. I'm like, this has gone too far. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, it's like it's, to some degree we're losing the we're losing something as human beings, which is being present with each other. Don't you think? I do think so. I mean, uh, I mean, it has its it has its benefits, but it has a huge cost, and that is, you know, human contact and and certain levels of communication. You know, I perennially feel like a teenager. You know, and my my husband calls me a screenager. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's tough. Have you have you ever thought about unplugging the way the characters in the movie do? Uh, yeah. You know, and 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 it, and it certainly would be tough, but you know, actually, I look forward to it. You know, you know, going away with my wife and listen, you cannot reach me, uh, or 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 to or to designate a certain time. If you really need to reach me, I'll be available between ten and eleven, <clears throat> and that's it. Yeah, and whatever it is, we'll have to wait until the next day between ten and eleven. I mean, I'm talking about at night. Yeah, good way to yeah, it's yeah, a good yeah. way to recharge, I think, right? Yeah. So, listen, um it is uh, it's great having you on. You have so many movies I would love to. I didn't get to uh when you did The Wiz with Whitney Houston. I didn't I there's t- tons of stuff I didn't get to, but uh just a, an amazing career uh filled with amazing performances and really fun performance in unplugging which is out and in theaters <laughs> and streaming soon. Hey Keith, thank you very much for doing this. We really appreciate your time. I appreciate you. Thanks a lot, Steve. All right, there you have it, Keith David, who has been in just so many movies and every Ken Burns documentary. He's got the voice, the voice. You know, which so he funny. says came from singing. Yeah. 
you know, it's so funny because, you know, do you remember that there was an actor, David Keith? I do. I do. And and it was like, wait a minute, Keith, David, David, who, which, which one, which one is it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, they couldn't be, you know, you know, more, more different, more yeah. different. Um, but um, oh, yeah, he's he he's great. He's great. Um, and he does so his voiceover career is insane. Oh, I don't amazing. I don't watch Rick and Morty like all the time. I've watched it a little bit. Yeah. I know he he plays the president um in that. And you know, I was reading about how they have tried to um or they've talked about having a category for um best actor at uh, best act best uh, best voiceover actor. Best voiceover actor for the Academy Awards. Like he's won, he's he's won Emmys. But when you think about it, there have been so many animated, you know, they have a category for best animated feature. Yes. And why shouldn't these voiceover actors be nominated? Yeah, that's a good point. It's a good point. You know, like you think of, you know, Robin Williams um, in Aladdin. Um, You think of, you know, the the voice of Yoda. Ellen DeGeneres in in Finding Finding Nemo. Nemo. Yeah. So, it's uh, I think I think it's really unfair that they're not nominated. Yeah. Although we're at a point where they're cutting categories from the Academy Awards <laughs> instead of adding them. You no, know what I'm I know. And that's that's probably one of the reasons why they don't want to add more. But yeah, I think it's uh, I think it's a valid point. Oh, know, I do, to too. Oh, I mean, I think, you know, and if you just watch TV and you see commercials, I, I don't know who he's doing voiceover for, but I hear it all the time and you hear that. And, you know, when I was coming up in radio, I always thought my voice didn't sound good. I, I didn't have, you know, deep voice. I didn't have pipes. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was born with those. In in the end, you know what I kind of decided? It's not, it's not how you sound. It's what you say. Right. Um, and that's the only thing that has sustained my career because I don't have these great, you know, Keith David pipes is that you, you know, it, it's what you're saying that ultimately, ultimately matters. But what a voice, what a mm-hmm. voice, what a cool mm-hmm. guy, what a great career. Yeah. Um, and the movie, by the way, we talked to Matt Walsh last week, really fun, unplugging. Mm-hmm. It's in theaters. It's streaming soon. Uh, really good time. Sue again, happy birthday. Thank you, Steve. And thanks, everybody, for listening to the Culture Pop Podcast. Don't forget, you can subscribe on Apple, Spotify, and at stevemason.com. And leave us a rating and a review, and we will see you next time.